So we're going to look at Hebrews 11 again. Um, it's the last time in this chapter, but next week I just want to round it off looking at the beginning of chapter 12. But here we're going to look at the end of chapter 11. Um, and we're going to pick up from... I want to read to you from verse 32, but we're really focusing from verse 35. And it's on page 1755 in the Brown Bible. So I'm going to read to you from verse 32 just because there's quite a lot of um, connection with the two passages. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. One of the things that we were thinking about last week was just how faith is not just for eternity. Faith is for um, the life that God's given us to lead here and now. And that often faith results in what you can think of as achievements for God. That God honors faith. And particularly we're thinking about how God uses weak people. We were just tracing through all the examples of the people mentioned in this passage. And just again and again, we're seeing how their stories in the Old Testament are told from a position of, here's this guy with all his failings and faults and problems, and God used him or her in extraordinary ways because of their faith. And I hope that many of us take heart from that. I think a lot of us look at our own lives and think, well, I just see all the the weaknesses I have and the failings I have and the reasons why... Um, God would not use me, and I want to urge you and encourage you to recognize that um, God loves to use the weak. In fact, it's his preferred option. Um, So that's where we were last week, and here we get to the kind of overlap in verse 35. It goes on, it says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to a better life. Immediately, there's a change of tone, isn't there? And suddenly we realize that he's dealing with a whole other kind of experience of the life of faith. If we only think about people who came from weakness to um, be used by God in profound ways, it's a very incomplete picture of the life of faith that's being described here in Hebrews 11 and throughout the Bible. And suddenly this tone just changes here. Some are tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It may be the case that you are experiencing hardships right now. I commented before how so often when you're just walking your way through passages of the Bible, it seems that you hit something that just resonates and with so much relevance to what you're experiencing right now. And it's certainly been my experience walking through Hebrews 11 as we have. And it may be the case that you're experiencing stuff that you wouldn't choose, you wouldn't want to be into. And if, you, if you're not right now, you will in the future. Absolutely no question of it. And can I promise you escape 
from all those things? Well, no, I can't, because clearly these people didn't always escape the, the problems that were thrown at them. In fact, you've got to remember that's the very reason this book has been written, the book of Hebrews, and the reason why this chapter is, is describing the life of faith, because actually the people who were reading it were, were struggling. You know, we just if you flick back into the last chapter, in chapter 10, you read about the kinds of things that they'd been going through. He talks about the former days when they'd become Christians. They're enlightened. In verse 32, he says in chapter 10, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. So here's, here's, that's the message of the book in, in just a few verses. Whatever you're experiencing of the Christian life right now, God's desired end for you is that you should learn what faith looks like in any and all of, life experiences, of life's experiences, and particularly that you will learn this amazing quality of what the Bible calls endurance or perseverance, keeping going. There was an amazing example of this in the Olympics. That I think it's probably my favorite moment in all the footage I've seen. The women's 5,000-meter heat. Probably some of you saw this. How In one of the races, there was a New Zealand lady called Nikki Hamblin who... Um, I don't know what happened, but she, she stumbled and fell. And as she fell, directly behind her, a U.S. athlete, Abby D'Agostino, tripped over her, and they both ended up flat on their faces on the ground on the track, which in a race like the 5,000 meters is not necessarily detrimental. There were still four laps to go. There was a possibility of them getting back in the race. But D'Agostino instinctively, as she stood up, turned to the New Zealander who looked despairing on the floor grabbed her by the hand, pulled her up, and said, you need to finish this race. And then as D'Agostino set off, she crumpled again onto the floor and realized there was something wrong with her leg. She hadn't noticed, probably just all the adrenaline pumping through her veins. And Hamblin then stopped and pulled her up. She was thinking, well, if, if, if I have to finish, you have to finish as well. <laughs> Apparently, you know, these guys, I'm sure they're friends, but they're competing. They're from different countries, New Zealand, USA. And uh, I, was, I was just reading up a bit about what was going on, and Dagosina had an interview afterwards. And uh, what turned out was that as she carried on running, she'd actually torn her anterior cruciate ligament, which is at the back of your knee. It's one of the most painful things you can ever experience. Now, I remember Michael Owen tearing his in one of the um, um, international football games years ago, and he just crumpled on the floor, and his career was dead for a little while as he had to recover from this thing. And D'Agostino had broken, had torn this ligament, but she went on and limped her way around the next four laps so that she could finish the 5,000 meters. Now, the two of them were granted uh, automatic qualification into the final of the race, but of course, D'Agostino's uh, unable to run for how, however long. Maybe it's, that's it for her, we don't know. And she was being interviewed about this, and she said, although my actions were instinctual at that moment, the only way I can have rationalized it is that God prepared my heart to respond that way. How precious. I think that's true. So often, like the work of God in your heart, it, it only comes out in moments like that. But it's obviously years of character formation that God's been working in her, that, she, that others go before you, even in competition. You know, not that she 
purposely let others go in front of her. But you know what I mean? Like There was that instinctive, I've got to help this girl who's just tripped up and tripped me up. And she says, this whole time here, God's made clear to me that my experience in Rio was going to be about more than my race performance. And as soon as Nikki got up, I knew that was it. I just found that, I was stunned when I read that. I thought, wow, um, incredible story. And it shows us so much what this passage in this whole book is about. That you can think about the Christian life as supposedly being about victory, achievement, success for God. And actually, while God sometimes uses some folk like that, and it may be your experience that that's what God wants to do through you, for others, it's more like you're the guy who trips up, falls on your face, breaks a ligament, and just has to limp your way around the rest of the race. And interestingly, God is way more interested in the faith than he is in whether we win or lose or whatever, if you want to use the race analogy. Such a powerful picture of what this chapter is about. And I want to tell you that what I'm, talking, I'm trying to speak into by way of those who are already going through stuff, but also to prepare you for the future and tell you why this is so important that we learn how to react well to circumstances. Let me just give you a few reasons why I think it's important. Because wrong expectations and deferred hopes can wreck your faith. If you have no place or readiness for suffering that might hit you in the Christian life, whether on a small or great scale, if you don't have an expectation of that, it can wreck your faith. And that was a danger for these people that he was writing to, the Hebrews. Josh is just so keen to know what's coming next. It, is it making funny noises? Can you all hear the funny noises coming through the mic? Okay, well that's my problem. I just keep bashing things and stuff like that. Sorry. Um, so it's important to know this stuff because the reality is if you're, if you're not aware that God allows you to experience things and your faith can be shipwrecked in a moment. Another reason why it's so important is because our wrong reactions to suffering expose our upside down view. If we think that the Christian life is really about God blessing me, then of course when, you don't, when you're not being blessed, you suddenly think something's wrong with God. You flip it, flip it around and realize actually the Christian life is, is actually about us blessing God. It's about us living a life of worship in an all and every situation. Suffering can expose that wrong theology, that wrong view of what the Christian life is about, that wrong view of God. Another reason why it's so important is because it reveals a kind of a poor and deficient faith that you think that this life is all that matters. My happiness here and now, and of course God never promises that, but what he does promise is, is eternity with him on the other side of that finishing line. I want us to just move through this passage in a few minutes, but I want us to begin just by saying this, this big point up front, that you can react badly to suffering. And I want to describe some of the ways that Christians react badly to, to difficulties. Let me just describe you five things that I'm sure one or more of them will resonate with us. One way that you can react badly is through self-pity. Sorry. <laughs> Self-pity. So distracting, this thing, isn't it? Anyway, that's when you're experiencing something you wouldn't choose. And your first reaction is, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And I think this self-pity, it dawned on me not actually that long ago. I was late in understanding this, just how very dangerous it is to the Christian life. 
It's wrong theologically and also dangerous practically. I want to show you how. Just theologically, you've got to realize that from a Christian point of view, the Christian life never begins with your rights. We never begin from a point of view of understanding ourselves as worthy of better treatment or better experiences in life. We rather begin from the point of view of understanding our unworthiness in which we can receive God's blessings with gratitude. So when we react with self-pity to the things that we're struggling with, it's obviously exposing that you, you think you deserve better. I don't want to be harsh about this, but the Bible doesn't say that about you. God gives us stuff from his grace, from his mercy, from his kindness. But we never start with our rights. But think about this practically. Hasn't it been your experience, it's certainly been mine, that when you allow space for self-pity in your heart, it becomes the mother of all other, other kinds of sins. When you indulge self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself, woe is me, it becomes a mother from which you give birth to other kinds of sins, things that... Ways of comforting yourself and, and, and finding, you know, if, if God isn't going to bless me or help me right now, I'm going I'm to find my blessing and my help from some other place, some other quarter. Self-pity is one way we can react. Here's a second. We can react to bad stuff with anger and even bitterness towards God. When you are struggling in life, it may be the case that you don't feel God's love. I mean, in that experiential gut level way you may not feel his love and when we don't feel god's love because we are these these beings we're not just minds we're not just brains on sticks we actually are whole beings with emotions and all the turmoil that goes on in our souls and our spirits we can feel something of a rejection and abandonment and that feeling of being unloved can so easily turn into resentment and even into anger you see this, this, this tension bubbling away through so many of the psalms. One moment the psalmist raising up the hand, asking why, before realizing before God, you know, something about God's grace or his goodness or our, our right response of gratitude that kind of resolves it in the spirit. But this is not uncommon for people to respond to difficult things by, say, by raising up the hand and saying why and feeling angry to God, towards God. Now, you think about the example of Job, how God allowed Job to experience the worst kinds of situations, how you know, his, his children were killed and his property was destroyed and everything in his life was taken away. And what did his wife say to him? She says to him, curse God and die. I think that was probably a very tempting thing for Job to do. He refuses, but it's tempting because in that moment, who experientially was Job's worst enemy. It's God. God is against me. God has done this to me. Curse God and die, she says. It's an example of the way that you can react with anger and bitterness towards God when you don't understand what's going on. Remember, though, in Romans 8, when Paul says things like this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he says, he goes on and says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Wonderful, amazing words. But you realize, of course, that it's set against the backdrop of suffering. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Can any of these things separate us from God's love? 
Of course, the answer he's driving you to is no, but the reason why he has to write it is because those are the times when you are most likely to think that God doesn't love you or least likely to feel his love. He says none of that stuff can separate you from God's love. That's why he goes on and keeps listing all the things that can be against us and says nothing's able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can give way to self-pity. We can give way to anger and bitterness towards God. Here's a third thing. When things don't turn out as you wish, hopes deferred, suffering, hardship, whatever, you can give way to cynicism and unbelief. I think... This is one of the things, reasons why so many Christians seem to lose their edge as they get older in the Christian life. Because often your Christian life can start with a burst of joy and optimism and passion. And certainly it can be characteristic of younger Christians. We're going to change the world, is the, is the feeling. And soon when you realize that things are a little bit harder than, you'd, than you thought they would be, things don't turn out how you think they're going to turn out, your experience is that all that joy, optimism, passion can be crushed and you start feeling a little bit stupid and a little bit embarrassed forever hoping for things in the first place. Now, what's the, the, the way that you tend to react when hopes are deferred or when optimism is crushed? For some of us, it's easier just to stop hoping, to stop believing, to stop rejoicing. It's a kind of self-protection. It's like, if I expect the worst, I can never be disappointed. You know, if I go through life with a right level, I call myself a realist. A right level of skepticism and cynicism and doubt and negative outlook, then, you know, I'll never be disappointed because I, I'm the kind of person who doesn't, you know, I, I never get my hopes inflated too much. But the trouble with that is it's a denial of so much. First, it's a denial of all that God's already done in your life and all the ways He's blessed you. A miserable Christian is a denial of the gospel. I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you're going through something or you're going through depression or whatever. I just want you to realize that that's not God's intention for you to remain there as a miserable Christian. It's a denial of so much that God's blessed you with, but it's also a denial of his ongoing and his promised future goodness to you, even in and through suffering. Cynicism and unbelief. Here's a fourth one. We can sort of move into what you can call kind of a semi-obedience and apathy. I think this is probably where some of these Hebrew Christians were at because you read some of the warnings through this book and you think, well, that seems to be what he's trying to tackle here. That we reason, if living for God feels like that, then maybe I'll just tone it down a little bit. If living for God leads to me experiencing those things or me you know, suffering in those ways, then maybe I'll just find a slightly easier route, a slightly less radical route. And to my mind, this is where... Huge numbers of Christians are settled, in, certainly in, in, in our context, in British Christianity. Semi-obedience and apathy. Kind of lip service to Jesus, but you look at whether discipleship has really kicked in in day-to-day life, and I'm not sure it has. And so we, it's easy for us to become like Christians who you know, are all for God on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, on, on, when we gather to worship on Sundays, But then the week kicks in and everything is basically, we just live the way we want to live. Take things into our own hands because really living for God is not that that great. I mean, look what happens to you when you live for God. This is the kind of thing like the book of Amos is talking about. And he's challenging the believers in Israel. And he says, 
He says, he says that you trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? And he goes on. He's saying, these people were thinking to themselves, when can we stop worshipping and our Saturday be over so that we can get into the week and carry on swindling people and oppressing people and making money for ourselves to make our lives more comfortable and better and more joyful? It's the very opposite, isn't it, to the kind of examples we're looking at in Hebrews 11 where he says they went about destitute on account of their desire to remain faithful to God. And how often this is true of Christians. You know, show up, sing songs, worship, pray, whatever, and then go into the week and really your Christian life isn't touching your life Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday because that portion of your week is firmly under your control. I'm living to make my life better in the way I want to live. Here's the last thing I want to mention in terms of wrong reactions. It's a pretty heavy word. It's the word apostasy. Abandoning the faith. When the Christian life is hard and alternatives look good, this is the final step. This, again, is... Probably the main motivator in this letter being written. You, you get it all the way through, but in passages like in chapter 3, he writes to them and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's warning against this stuff all along. And the thing about people who often slip away from faith when their experience of the faith doesn't match their hopes is that, yeah, some people turn around and huff And they storm out, and other people just slip away. Nothing dramatic, nothing, you know, overt or obvious, just maybe just coming to church a bit less to begin with, and then and then never. He says, Take care, brothers. Take care. Look at your own heart. Is it unbelieving? Are you are you struggling to exercise faith in God? Because of your disappointment, your struggle, your, your experience of, of what Christian life has been like so far. And he also says, look, the church should never allow this. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened. So he's saying, our job, and the, part of the reason we are a church, is to help one another never fall into this, never fall away, never turn our backs. Yes, yeah, some people, you just can't stop them. Because no matter what you say to them, they've made up their mind. They're walking away. Do you have a friend who's in that place? Have you done anything about it? You contacted them. You sat them down for a coffee. You challenged them. Have you scared them if necessary? I've done that before. <laughs> Not by just being angry or shouting. But you show them stuff in the Bible. You tell them to see. Look, friend. This is the biggest decision you could ever make. Are you really going to just throw it all in? Now, these are some of the wrong reactions and the very reasons why this chapter's been written. 
I want us to get into, into the passage a bit more now, though, and say, listen, not only can you react badly to suffering, and maybe you identify some of, what I've said, some of what I've said, the second thing I want to say to you is you need a change of perspective. You need a change of perspective. Remember, the purpose of this book and this chapter is that God wants to breathe fresh life into you now and prepare you and guard you for the future. And there's a couple of ways that God can help you, right? One is that he can radically change your circumstances. So that the things you're going through now, he can lift you out of them. And you see that occasionally in scripture when God just lifts people out of their hardship when they cry out to him. And that's certainly one way. But so often, you know, that doesn't deal with the root when our hearts are in a bad place, right? If God just magically or powerfully changes your circumstances and all along you were sat there in your cynicism and your doubt and your unbelief and all that kind of stuff, then the minute something bad hits you again, then you're on, you're on the floor, aren't you? The more important thing for us as Christians is to understand that God is way more interested in changing your reactions to situations than he is in changing your situation. He wants to shape our heart response to teach us what faith is like in any and all of life's circumstances. It's one of the things that strikes you when you read the New Testament, and particularly when you look at the prayers of the early church, that you'd be hard-pressed in all of Paul's prayers that he's written in his letters to ever find one where he's praying for a change of circumstances. But again and again, he's praying for the right heart, the right faith within his situation. Acts 4 is a beautiful example of this in the corporate prayer of the early church. There they were. They were told never to preach again in Jesus' name. And what do they do? They start praying. They say, God, you're sovereign over all of this. We know you're sovereign over this situation. We know that you appointed these rulers. And so we understand, they were saying, basically, we understand that this situation is, is okay. Just as Christ was put on the cross under your sovereign will, we're in a situation of being persecuted by your sovereign will. And what do they ask God for? They don't ask that the persecution will stop. They say, God, give us boldness to keep preaching in your name. They're not interested in God just airlifting them or transforming their situation, which tends to be our first reaction in prayer, doesn't it? They're saying, God, may we learn how to be faithful in the situation you've put us in. Just to help you understand this whole thing, that it's not circumstances so much as reactions that are the most important thing. I want you to just flip it around and think about, okay, what happens when you're in the best of life that life can offer you? We know, don't we, that when we look around us, that even when you have the best of what the world has to offer, health, wealth, prosperity, it doesn't make you happy. It doesn't result in happiness in any automatic sense. I was so amazed, um, I don't know how long ago, probably in the last year, seeing uh, Matt Damon being interviewed on Graham Norton's show. Some of you probably saw this. Graham Norton, is just, they're just reminiscing about, you know, however long ago it was, probably in the 90s, when um, Matt Damon won an Oscar. Young age of 27, you know, struggling actor, and he won an Oscar. I think it was for the film Goodwill Hunting. And... Graham Norton asks him the question. He says, that night must have sent you into a tailspin. Did you go crazy that night? I suppose in Norton's mind, he's thinking about all those famous people we know of who've reached a pinnacle and then they've just 
just self-destructed. And their lives just go mental. And they never, often never come back from that. Because they've reached the best of what life can offer them. And they realize it's not enough. They're still hungry. And Matt Damon's answer was so wise and insightful. I mean, he is Jason Bourne after all. So <laughs> he, says, he says, he sat there that night. He sat up late and he says, I couldn't sleep. I was still buzzing. And just sitting there. And I remember very clearly looking at that award, the Oscar, and thinking very, very clearly. I literally looked at it. I was alone with it. And I said to myself, thank God I didn't do anybody over for this. I suddenly had this kind of thing wash over me where I thought, imagine chasing that and not getting it. And getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with all of life behind you. And realizing what an unbelievable waste of your... Because it can't. You know what I mean? It can't fill you up. If that's a hole that you have, that won't fill it, right? And I felt so blessed to have that awareness at 27 because I wouldn't have known it unless I knew it. And I I literally, my heart broke for a second. It's like I imagined another one of me, you know, an old man kind of going, oh my God, where did my life go? What have I done? And then it's over. He's saying what we all know, but find so hard to accept that Even the best that life can offer you doesn't make you happy. And so it ought to follow. It ought to follow that when you lack the best that life has to offer you, when your situation is is miserable, it, it shouldn't necessarily follow that you are miserable. That there is a way of living, especially living before God, that is not necessarily over the circumstances or under them, but just through them by faith. It doesn't matter whether you're in the best of times or the worst of times. It's like Paul said in the end of Philippians. I I know the secret of contentment. I can abound or I can be abased. He says, sometimes I've got so much food on the table, I feel like a greedy pig. And other times I'm like, I'm starving for days on end because we're traveling and we've run out of stuff. It's kind of like what you're meant to understand by that. And he's saying, "I, I know how to be content. Now, just getting into Hebrews 11, finally. The whole thing then pivots on that first verse, verse 35. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. It's the end of the list of all the great things that can happen in your life when you live a life of faith. You know, conquering kingdoms and enforcing justice and obtaining promises. And it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Two massively contrasted situations. One Situation, someone dies and God raises them from the dead. I think he's thinking about the boys of the, of the, the two women that Elijah and Elisha um, he ra- prayed for and they came back from the dead. And then there's the worst situation, people being tortured. He's probably thinking about the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolts and how so many people were, were, suffered extraordinary torture under that, in that period. And he's saying both of these are the experience of faith, so we need to do away with the simplistic view of what the Christian life should looks like or ought to look like. And you see this perfect balance going on in this verse. We hope for victory. We hope for achievement. We hope for advancement in this life. We all want to live for God, and we want to do something for him, right? But our ultimate hope, he's saying, lies elsewhere. It's actually not so much about this life, it's about the next. This is what is captured so perfectly in the book of Philippians, when Paul is, is, is languishing in prison. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I'm to live in the flesh, think all the list of examples we've had above about doing great things for God. He says, that means fruitful labor for me. Brilliant. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Paul was not under the illusion that making his mark in this life was what this life was all about. He was not under the illusion that God had to give him his best life now. He was not a fool who thought that having happiness here and now is what it's all about. He's saying, yeah, if I carry on living, I can be fruitful to God and glorify him that way. And if I die, I can go and be with Jesus and glorify him for eternity. And friends, that's exactly the, what, how this verse in Hebrews 11 just pivots. The whole, just reframes the whole thing as you look at what it means to live a life of faith. That basic perspective, an eternal one rather than a temporal one, means that you can keep the faith in all and any circumstances. So may, yeah, maybe God's going to give you a life that's like some of the great heroes of faith. And you know, we have no reason to rule that out. God appoints some of us to do great things for him on this life. But maybe, maybe your life is going to be a little bit more resembling the rest of the stuff you see going on in this verse, in, in these verses. Maybe not so extreme, but hey, you, you never know. Maybe, you know, suffering, mocking, flogging, and chains and imprisonment, and being stoned and sawn in two, and they're killed with the sword, and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Pretty miserable, right? The whole point of faith is that faith is trust. Faith is knowing that God is good in everything. In fact, you can push that a bit harder and say, the fact that these people suffered was in many ways the stamp of God's approval and pleasure on their lives. Did you notice how he said in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy? Now, I read that in this way, that he's saying God didn't want to spoil these ones by getting all their pleasures and treasures too early. He wanted to heighten their joy in eternity by minimizing it in in this life. Because the world wasn't worthy of them. They, they couldn't be ruined by the cheap pleasures of this life. I don't want to minimize the goodness that God can lavish upon us in this life. That's not where I'm coming from at all. But you know, sometimes not everyone's experience is like that. And when you look at it through this lens of whom the world was not worthy and how they then received their commendation through faith, you realize, wow, God actually intends for some people to miss out on stuff here because he doesn't think that the world is worthy of them. They're, they're special. Their faith is special. Maybe they're his best saints. I don't know. Don't waste your suffering. That's how John Piper puts it. I think that's what this passage is all about. Don't waste it. Use it as an opportunity to earn rewards in eternity and preach the goodness of God in and through any situation. Here's the last thing I want to say to you. 
We talked about how you can react badly to suffering, but also how you need to change your perspective. And here's the last thing I want to say. You need to understand, friends, your privileges. We know that um, all suffering is relative. One of my brothers, my older brother, is a consultant anesthetist and um, has worked in um, accident and emergency situations most of his working time, just a death's door helping people, basically. And uh, his wife, Emily, would, was often at home looking after three children and sometimes over the weekends and when he was at work and all that kind of stuff and often would feel tempted to feel sorry for herself because, yeah, looking after kids is exhausting, especially when it's three of them, especially when it's my nie- nieces and nephew. And uh, they, they, they run riot and she's, she's tired out and she's on the edge of you know, breaking down in tears because it's like, oh, I just need my husband around. Trouble is, James is the least sympathetic person I know because he gets home and she says to him, she says, oh, I've just had such a hard day and it's just been so tough. And he's like, oh, I just worked for 24 hours and I just saved about three lives today. And uh, blood gushing everywhere and all the rest of it. And you think, oh, you think your life is stressful? Well, think about me for a minute. Now, I won't, I'm just saying that not to make my brother look bad, though he does, doesn't he? But, but really to say to you, whatever difficulties we face... It's true that someone can always one-up you, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Someone's always gone through worse. And it seems to me that all these heroes of faith are being listed here for that reason. To remind these Christians of the people who've gone before them and what they've gone through to get to this point. To carry the flame, to carry the torch, as it were, of what biblical faith is to get it to you people and he says in verse 39 all these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised which is just a a kick in the teeth because what he's saying is they suffered worse than you and they had less light less revelation less understanding of God than you do so they were worse off on two counts their experience of life was worse and they didn't have all the privileges you have. And what is he talking about when he, he's talking about our privileges? He, say, he goes on in the next verse, since God had provided something better for us. He's talking about the Christians who are being written to in this letter and you and me, because we're in exactly the same boat. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Think of what he's saying. Whenever you're tempted to feel sorry for yourself, think of what he's saying here. God had provided something better for us. He's talking of Jesus. His teaching, the most radical, life-changing teaching, his example. We look at Jesus and we understand his compassion for the broken and the needy. And we're touched by it. We're thinking about the cross Before he died on the cross, no one quite understood or grasped it. And now we live on the other side of this. And we know our sins are forever dealt with on the cross. That is the greatest privilege imaginable. He's talking about the resurrection. Are you afraid of dying? You needn't be, because Jesus rose from the dead. So you're going to as well. You think people on the other side of the resurrection understood that as clearly as we can now? He's talking about... The Holy Spirit being poured out upon us. Have you enjoyed intimacy with God because the Spirit lives in you? Power to change, 
Friends, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a New Testament thing that we as the church have the, the great privilege of, which these people did not in the same way. He's talking about the church itself, that you have been brought into a family when you're from disparate and separated people groups all around the world, and God's brought us together into one new family, and we worship together, and we encourage one another, and we love each other, and we uphold one another. He's talking about God's grace. And I think people under the Old Testament understood something of God's grace, but not to the degree that we do. Certainly not all of them. Do you know all of my sins dealt with at the cross? Even the sin of my unbelief and my misery right now. He's talking about freedom from the law. That burden that crushes those under it. Lifted off us when Jesus lived the life that we were meant to live. He's talking about Jesus being our intercessor right now at the right hand of God. You ever fearful of approaching God because of shame or whatever? You needn't be because Jesus is right there pleading your case incessantly. And he's sympathetic with you in your weaknesses. And he loves you. He's talking, he's talking about these things. He's talking about knowing God as Abba, Father. That's what Packer said was, you know, he described as something like the, the biggest sort of transitional revelation from Old to New Testament when people began to realize that you could call God Abba because Jesus did it. And he told us that we received the Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that you can know intimacy with God like they never understood. Or to a depth they didn't understand that wholeness, that completeness, that satisfaction of a Father who loves you. Friends, what we're talking about here is the difference of going from VHS to Blu-ray. Some of you don't know what VHS is. <laughs> Those old video cassettes we used to front load into the machine and then hope that they don't you know, get tangled up like old cassette tapes and we rewind to find where we're at and they're all grainy on the screen. Going from that to Blu-ray, it's like going from porridge to fillet steak or lentils if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> it's like going from Lynx deodorant to Tom Ford cologne. It's like the contrast. Yes, they understood something of God's goodness, his grace, and his, his wonderful care to us. But doesn't he say here that God had provided something better for us? Wow. And I know it's not always easy to keep this stuff front and center. Because, well, for one thing, we're forgetful. Just like these Hebrews that he was writing to. We, we forget all our privileges in Christ, don't we? And another thing is that we're emotional. And that's okay, but it does mean that when you're feeling pain, when you're feeling down, whatever you're feeling, sometimes your feelings are all that you can feel at that moment. It's like, that just seems bigger to me than all the goodness of God right now. We're emotional creatures. And we also just lack understanding. And the thing is, God doesn't always give us understanding for what we're going through. You put all that together, our forgetfulness of all his goodness, our emotions in the moment, and our lack of understanding why God, and you have a dangerous cocktail for what these people were potentially in danger of, which is all this unbelief and potentially walking away from God. But friends, this is why the letters were written. This is why I'm talking to you about what faith really is. 
Not some mumbo-jumbo prosperity nonsense that you can get in some versions of Christianity. But the, the real stuff, the genuine thing which is here being described. And this is why we gather. It's why we're a church. It's why we want to bring more people into this church family. Because suddenly, whenever we gather, don't you find that your, your bad memory about God's goodness actually gets cleared up and you, you realize again, oh, God is good and I can sing these songs. And suddenly all that, that frustration of your emotions during the week is cleared up and you, you start thinking about his goodness. And this is why we sing. It's why we sing songs that are unashamedly emotive. Because we want to engage our hearts and our passions as much as our minds. Let me close off. Friends, I don't know that all of you are Christians. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, then I don't know whether you're going to suffer more or less than the person next to you. I don't know what your life has been like to this point. I don't know what you've got waiting for you to come. But I can tell you this, that to suffer without Christ is to suffer in hopelessness. Some of us, that was our story before we came to know Jesus, that we were racked by the tortuous feeling of hopelessness in our situations. For some, that's been the story that I've heard. And hopelessness, because, you know, what possible meaning can suffering have in a a universe that doesn't have a a loving father who's sovereign over it all? It's just, it's just, it's just a nothing. Makes you feel miserable, but who cares? No one's there to care. And I can promise you this, that while Jesus doesn't necessarily offer you an easier life when you follow him. Sometimes he offers you worse. And he's quite clear about that. You read the Gospels. He's not trying to sugarcoat this thing. What he is offering you is truth. Understanding significance of what this life is about and eternity. It reframes everything. That's why Christians so often can walk through life with incredible dignity. I think that's why D'Agostino spun around and helped Hamlin up in that moment. Because she knew, even instinctively she knew, that whatever suffering she's going through right at that moment, living for God is more important. Her character is more important. Her faith is more important. Maybe you do know Christ. Maybe you do know Jesus. I I want to encourage you to keep asking yourself this question. I hope you've been asking it even as we've been wrestling through this stuff. Is my life and my joy shaped by my circumstances or by my faith? Maybe there's stuff you need to repent of. You know, the things I was naming earlier on, like self-pity or anger at God or cynicism or apathy or even the temptation to just walk away abandoning it all. And God's saying to you, he's getting a hold of you today, and he's saying, stop it. Listen and, and repent and come back to me. And maybe there's just things you just need to believe afresh. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Our God is saying that in all of this, God is perfecting you. We're going to have the amazing privileges considering the faith of Jesus next week but right now I'm going to hand back to Danny and we're going to take communion together and worship together but maybe I can just pray with you before we do that
Father, I want to confess on behalf of all of us here, Lord, that so often we are a little bit like petulant children whose, um, whose emotions are more shaped by our present feeling of need and often anger or frustration or despair or whatever, Lord. And Lord, we want to say to you, Lord, that we're sorry that we don't trust you more. I thank you, Lord, for this incredible chapter and the incredible examples of faith. But Lord, it does often feel beyond beyond my reach, beyond our reach, when we look at these people and think, wow, they, they achieve so much. They They lived such difficult lives and they kept believing. Lord, we come to you and just empty-handed say, Lord, we know that faith is a gift. Give us more faith, Lord. Give us the ability not to live air-headed, bubbly, sort of fake lives of joy, but to live the real thing. To know, Lord God, what it is to have dignity in the face of difficult situations, to know what it is to have firm trust in the living God when life is not as we would wish it to be, to know what it is to live a radical life, Lord, of, of, of deliberate and purposeful self-sacrifice and, and self-denial um, so that we can, by faith, grow in our, in our love for you. And may we as a church embody this more and more, Lord, that, we, that our lives our reactions, our emotions, all that we are would preach the goodness of God to a city that, frankly, doesn't know what hope is. I pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Amen.